0: Hey everyone, it's Jaime Alejandro here with the Arts Calling Podcast, the showcase of hard-working independent creatives in the literary, visual, and performing arts. I have a wonderful conversation lined up for you today, but first, I'd like to do a quick shout-out. I'd like to take a moment to highlight the First Draft Club. This is a podcast by Mary Atkins, who is an author and writing coach. She was a guest on Arts Calling recently, and I've been listening to... Quite a bit of the catalog, and she's had so many informative, short-form episodes that I think would be beneficial for you to consider. It's a remarkable podcast to help you overcome resistance and write with more joy, clarity, and confidence. And so if you're working on a novel or memoir, you should give it a listen. Check out the link in the episode description and enjoy The First Draft Club with Mary Atkins. This time around, I am arts calling John Yamrus. In a career spanning more than 50 years as a working writer, John has published 35 books, including 29 volumes of poetry, two novels, three volumes of nonfiction, and a children's book. He has also had nearly 3,000 poems published in magazines and anthologies around the world. A number of his books and poems are taught in college and university courses. He is widely considered to be a master of minimalism and the neo-noir in modern poetry. His latest books are 24 Poems and Selected Poems, The Director's Cut. A volume of his Selected Poems was recently published in Albania, and 24 Poems is due out in translation later this year. It was such a pleasure to chat with John about so many years as a working writer, somebody who's been doing this for a very long time. I think there's great moments of insight and just a very light conversation, so I hope you enjoy. And so with that said... Let's give John a call. Hello, is this John?
1: Okay, how's that?
0: That sounds wonderful. Hey, John, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. How's the weather over there in your neck of the woods?
1: Okay, let me put this on speaker.
0: Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. So how's it okay. going over there in your neck of the woods?
1: Uh it's cold. It's probably in the high fifties. We're closing our pool on Wednesday. Uh, <laughs> so things things suck on that end.
0: Oh no. Well, you know, I'm really excited to get to talk to you. You have a lot of history that I'm I'm really eager to get to learn more about, but If we could kind of set the stage a little bit about your work and and sort of how you find writing, could you share a couple of things about how you made your way into writing?
1: That's that's a a perfect first question. Um, I've been publishing for 53 years now. Uh, Apparently, I'm older than Dirt. Uh, I've been publishing for 53 years. When I was starting out, like most aspiring writers most aspiring artists it's difficult to get your foot in the door and um i had a friend my best friend rick and i we were both aspiring writers at the time and as such we were finding it difficult to we, we'd write to publishers and they'd say well where have you been published before what awards have you won and of course the answer was nowhere and nothing so um Every weekend, he and I would get together, and we'd finish off a a, a really cheap bottle of pop-off vodka. I don't know <laughs> if they even sell this stuff. It might have been outlawed after years. We'd finish a, a bottle of pop-off vodka, and I'd either, either walk him back to his house, or he'd walk me back to my house. But one night, it was had to be 2 o'clock in the morning, and we were weaving our way back down to his house. Now, I swear to God, this is a true story true story. We're walking back to his house complaining, as we always did, about how we couldn't get published, hadn't won any awards, and he took the last sip of that bottle of pop-off vodka, looked up at the street sign, which happened to be the corner of Oliver and Wakefield streets. Now, this is a true story. He looked up at the sign which said Wakefield Street, and said, John, I hereby award you the Wakefield Prize. And he handed me the bottle of vodka, took the bottle of vodka, and we went our separate ways. The next morning, I rode off to a fairly prestigious, well-known magazine out of Chicago at the time. And uh, I said, I've recently been awarded the prestigious Wakefield Prize. (laughs) W- would you think about con- uh, publishing some of my work? I, sh- I sent off a whole back of poems, and w- with that letter, a couple weeks later, I get an—I uh, almost said email—I get, I get a letter in the mail that said, uh, "Dear John, I heard about you recently winning the Wakefield Prize. Congratulations! I'd very much like to publish your work." and that is how i lied my way into a 53 year career as a working writer oh
0: my Fruit goodness story. so i just love this this sort of uh, i i hate to use the term like to 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 date the story in in some respects but it does feel like something that could only happen 50 years ago because of now you think of the obstacles that would come from that which would be oh they would take a five minutes to Google it or whatever, but I just, I love the tenacity to just say, yeah, I'm going to fake it till I make it. And I'm, and I'm (laughs) I'm just going to tell them these, uh, my favorite narrative and, uh, and see what happens. But Hey, it seems to have worked out for you. And so what did you do after that? What was the following step that you took to, to feel like you were actually arriving as a poet?
1: Well, let me back up a bit. I, I, I've been publishing for 53 years. I think I've published 37 or 38 books and I really feel uncomfortable calling myself a poet. Mm. The reason being I I see Walt Whitman and Edgar Allan Poe and Mayakovsky and those kind of people, they're poets. I I'm still aspiring to that uh uh designation. Uh so yeah i i'm not yet a poet Uh, i'm just a work in progress but you know back in the day when, when i was getting started when i was in my young 20s it was the uh the height of the mimeo revolution back then anybody if 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 you're of a certain age you remember when you were in school you would get the test handed out and they were done on spirit duplicators which is an alcohol based process mm. and we'd get our tests in school and if you remember we'd all pick them up and smell them with that, that fresh <laughs> alcohol smell on them. and um i got myself must have cost me 100 bucks uh, a cheap spirit duplicator and i started running off uh, a, a duplicated issue of a magazine that I used to publish monthly. And anybody who had a spirit duplicator would publish a magazine, you know, 300, 400 copies. And there became a community of Writers and publishers, and that's how we all kind of got started. There were, there were, you know, that's where Bukowski cut his teeth. That's where people like Gerald Lachlan and and all those others uh, got started. And I, being just a few years younger than that crowd, also got started in that way. So, so the mimeo revolution was where I got my feet wet.
0: Yeah. So uh, when abouts was this? Like, well, if you could give me like a year just for, for frame of reference for folks that who may be listening. Part,
1: that was probably the early 70s.
0: Okay. Yeah. And so that seemed to, to be a thriving community. Was this something that was localized or, or something that you felt was oh, no, happening the, nationally
1: or, or internationally even? Okay. Well, it, yeah, at least my small participation and it was was on a national basis but when i say national basis you know these small magazines again i said had a few hundred copies it was all little teeny niches of groups um uh, a guy named d.a levy he, he used to publish things on 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 mimeo and and you know, there's just so many names, so many interesting people who got our feet wet and learned that, that you got to do the work. You have to do it every day. And um, sometimes it bothers me. Oh, good. Go ahead. So do
0: you recall what kind of stuff you were writing about at that time and, and what kind of things you were publishing, uh, whatever your friends were writing about? What was the, the kind of climate of content that was being created there in, in terms of um, of inspirations, what was guiding you at the time that made you want to write? Well, yeah, well, it, it, guiding
1: me at the time was was you know every writer starts out imitating your heroes. So at that time, I was a I was a carbon copy imitation of of Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and Walt Whitman. My stuff was very bardic, you know. I wanted to write at that time. I wanted to write the great poem, you know, it, it, and it took me took me a good 20 years to realize that that was not the right path for me. Writing the great poem was was not the right choice for me. My choice, the proper path for me, was learning how to, and understanding how to illuminate those small moments in life. And like I said, it took me a good 20 years to figure that out. I had already had, oh, I bet, fifteen books published by that mm. time. Really crappy books. Really <laughs> bad books. Two so, bad novels. Yeah, yeah. It's so two so, novels. That, that go ahead. It, this is fun. No,
0: this is great. Tell me about those specific failures. If you if you could recount one where you because in the moment i don't know that we know their failures i think that th- that we think that they're the best that we can do with the time that we have with the ability that we have and the skill sets are still being acquired so can you share with me w- if you when you looked back to a specific novel or collection of poems that you had released in your in the first chunk of your career what were the things that you were identifying as problems or issues that, that you said, oh, this is clearly a problem, or I can't believe I was doing that at the time? Just so that we can, we can look at those breakthroughs and, and see what you learned from them.
1: Well, well, they're all part of that natural progression of, of learning and growing and gaining your own voice. When I talk to kids in, in classes and in, you know writing groups, I tell them that that's the main thing an aspiring writer has to do, whether you're writing poetry or whether you're writing uh, prose or even whether you're making music. When you listen to Carlos Santana, you know that's Carlos Santana or you know that's Miles Davis. When you're reading... Uh, Stephen King, you know that Stephen King, because he has a recognizable style and voice, and that's something I encourage every aspiring writer or musician to attain to: finding out what's comfortable and real and true for you.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you bring that up because speaking of Carlos Santana, I was I was listening. We went for a drive because you know we've been cooped up with COVID in the last like week and a half, and. Uh, we got the family in the car and when one of my playlists has, um, the Woodstock, uh, soul sacrifice session where, where the you know oh, like 12 minutes of heaven, you know, and, and just like this, this weird, almost religious experience right of Santana. But Santana, when he was, you know, in his early twenties, or I don't even know how old he was, he was quite young to the Santana of now, there are some, some imprints of, of his voice that haven't changed that are very singular, very unique to him. And I think if, if we could, Talk about the things that you identified about yourself that were kind of the way into poetry, because I think that that's another way to see it. Right. You know, we can talk about all of our failures. We can talk about the things that we did that weren't very smart when we were young as artists. But what were the things that intuitively worked for you at that age that still work for you? Because those are little pieces that that are are identifiers of your own voice. So what, what were those things for you?
1: I I can tell you exactly. I can tell you specifically and precisely that aha moment for me. Uh, let me back up a little bit. For me, poetry is, well, almost by definition, saying as much as you can in as few words as possible. And like I said, in my early days, I used to have, you know, i I. Like most aspiring writers, I'd write and talk and talk and talk. I fell in love with the sound of my own voice, and that was my mistake. My aha moment, where the clouds kind of seemed part for me. Oh, God, it's a good 20 years ago, maybe more, when I wrote a poem that was, and, and this is imprinted in my brain i think it was only 17 words and and i could recite that poem to you my aha moment poem it went like this this is the poem write a poem write a poem about that she said sitting on the edge of the bed smiling now years ago before that moment i would continued i would have continued writing and talking and describing exactly what that moment was. But for some reason, you know, the stars just were in the right space for me. I looked at what I had wrote, and I realized right then and there that what I had said and what the reader was going to read, more importantly, what the reader was going to read, was more interesting more descriptive than anything i could write so once i said write a poem about that he said i gave up the poem and put it in the hands and imagination and the reader and once i recognized that once i realized that the reader is a whole part of this nifty little dance we do as as artists uh the clouds parted and my job became a whole lot easier from then on and and it's been clear sailing ever since mm. it was almost like you needed to have that
0: realization that writing is an act of instigation rather than rather than a complete <laughs> thing it right it's it's just getting the question out there and i i do feel that way because that's that's my philosophy with theater you know i write plays and it needs to be completed by the second person, the reader, the, you know, the audience, you know, whoever that, that person who is receiving, uh, that, that experience, but it's such a key, a key bit of wisdom to have so early on. And it's amazing that you found that so early on. So how do you go about building the rest of that catalog? What kind of battles did you have during these 40 years, 50 years of, of creating work that, that stick out in your mind?
1: Oh, yeah, I, I could tell you exactly. The, the, <laughs> the battle is is a, a battle with consistency and professionalism. Uh, I always run into writers who, you know, the, I'll say, what are you doing now? Oh, I'm just waiting for inspiration. And that's a load of crap as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. <laughs> So you you don't believe in that.
0: You you don't believe in the writer's block thing. You feel uh you feel that the professionalism will win out by by having just total discipline day in and day out.
1: Uh, yes, good good work habits, doing it day in and day out, do it every single day. I always looked at myself as being a kind of a lunch pail type of guy. Uh, you know, I do the job, I come down here, my office, if you want to call it that, is in my basement, my desk. And I come down here every day. I try to do something to further my writing every day. And that's important. You know, those guys who say they're waiting for inspiration or those people who talk about saying, oh man, I sent something out last week and it got rejected. For me, Rejection rejection is just put in the road to weed out the unwilling. I've always wanted to be willing. Yeah. That that's the way I've looked at it.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about life for a minute because it's something that is that is so <laughs> in my mind a hundred percent of the time in, in, in terms of the many aspects of our of our daily living that include not writing such as your day job, such as family, such as uh, building a career or some kind of stability outside of the arts. I feel that's incredibly important to address, and I'm hoping that you might indulge me in sharing a bit about how you've allowed your writing to thrive in whatever environment you may be. So could you share a little bit about how you have found stability to continue? Because I know that that's another barrier outside of of the practical nuts and bolts of, say, writer's block or whatever. But like some people just can't afford to to eat because they're too focused on their writing. So is there a middle ground or what have what has worked for you uh, over the years uh, in terms of building a sustainable way to live that supports writing? Well,
1: nothing supports writing. Uh, unless you're very, very, very lucky. Like Bukowski, that was lightning in a bottle. The, sure. the guy caught it, and, and he recognized what his audience wanted, and he gave it to him. And he was very good at what he did. He was perfect at what he did. Uh, the the balance is, again, getting back to discipline. And even if you only have 10 minutes a day to, to do your art, if you want to call it an art, uh, you have to discipline yourself to do it, and that was always the case for me in in my working life now i'm seventy seventy two now almost at seventy three i'm seventy two now so i am officially retired and i had been i had been retired for quite some time um mm. they they reached a point when i got when i lost my last job uh I was in my late fifties and uh, someone, Todd Moore, a, a writer. Todd Moore. If, if you don't know him, Google him and look him up. Moore with an e on the end. Uh, he told me maybe the universe is trying to tell you that it's time to to just write full time. And he was he was right, you know. But finding that balance between making a living, having a life, and in you know. Uh, facing the world and all that comes with it, that that's a challenge for anybody. It's never going to be easy.
0: Absolutely. And I subscribe to that idea. I mean, we have to be realistic about it because not everyone has the silver spoon to begin with. Right. And so we have to be honest with ourselves about what we can handle in the moment or what we can actually achieve. And then from that you start building and you start getting more, um, you start to acquire more tools that allow you to go further and further and eventually you do get to that place of of self uh i guess actualization through your art or whatever you want to call it but um yeah. did did your did your retirement bring about more like what did you feel what did you feel happen when you got into that retirement uh situation you, you know it it
1: scared me i i was always afraid that you know if if I was doing this full time, would things change? Would my writing change? Would my approach to the whole thing change? You, you know, would the having the luxury of being able to do it anytime I wanted, anywhere I wanted, would that change things for me? And it only made it better. And that's that's the weird thing. It made it so much easier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to explain it other than that. And
0: yeah and that that makes complete sense
1: yeah i i've got two new books coming out uh a new book of poems that'll be out in november uh called people and other bad ideas And, and i also have i i published a few years ago two we'll call them memoirs, but really they're basically, uh, poems with a thyroid condition. Um, <laughs>
0: That's another good title. And, and, uh, just keep that one in mind keep that one in mind.
1: <laughs> I, 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 I will In in any case, they, they were just looking back at, at what it was like for me growing up in the late 1950s in a, uh, growing up less than wealthy in a coal mining community, Mm. you know, being an artsy kind of kid. And those two books came out and because of COVID, a lot of small businesses went out of print. They went out of business. And uh, those two books were part of the fallout from COVID and they went out of print. and, and, uh, Recently, I, I had a book released in, in Europe in, in translation, and we did a book release by Zoom. And for some reason, that got me a lot of attention.
0: And part
1: of the fallout from, from that was uh, a publisher, two publishers actually, uh, contacted me about bringing out more stuff. And my idea make a long story short, was to bring these two memoirs back into print and release them in one volume. The two memoirs are now going to be called The Street, and they'll be out in November. So I got two new books coming out in November.
0: Oh, that's wonderful to hear. So, if you like, we can talk about twenty-four poems for just a little bit, and then we can we can continue on uh, talking about the street if you like. But I'm curious about twenty-four poems because it is your latest book of poems, and I think that um, it might signal. Um, I don't know. I guess maybe you could give me the uh, the overview of uh, of what this collection is about or where it began, if you could.
1: Okay, let me let me back up one step behind that. Previous to that, the the book immediately before that was called Selected Poems. Mm. Uh, my then publisher, Concrete Mist Press, he wanted to bring out a 550-page, that, that was the limit of his printing capabilities, he mm. wanted to bring out a 550-page retrospective of my poetry. And I told him he was nuts, he was going <laughs> to lose his, his shirt, because nobody would spend the kind of money that it would cost to buy a five hundred and fifty page book of poetry, especially my crappy poetry. So we <laughs> fought over it for, for we, we we fought over it for two months. And I went out, I got him to cut the book down from five hundred and fifty pages to three hundred and eighty four. He published the book and it sold. It became his best selling title. So then he came back to me and he said, John, I want to release this book the way it was originally intended, 550 pages. I told him he was even crazier than he was at the first time because we had already sold as many as we were going to, and he was going to really lose a lot of money. Well, he we fought again, and I told him he was crazy, but I let him bring out 542 page edition of my selected poems which we called selected poems the director's cut <laughs> and to both of our surprise so you, you can appreciate that title and and to both of our surprises Selected Poems, The Director's Cut came out and hit number one in poetry, number one on Amazon for like an hour and a half. But I, I took nice. a screenshot of that being number one on Amazon. <laughs> and after that book came out, now that book was 35 bucks, a very expensive thing, which made it prohibitive for young readers, for students and people like that. So I wanted my next book to be slim, Affordable, cheap. So that's how Twenty Four Poems came to into being, um, and and that book came out and it was only fourteen dollars, and it did and is doing very well. So I'm proud of that book. I'm proud of all my books.
0: Yeah. So what what is the content of Twenty Four Poems? Can you share a bit about what the what what is it that you're trying to share in
1: Twenty Four Poems? I I when I sit down to to have a book. There's never a, a a real point I'm trying to make. It's just a snapshot of whatever I'm doing at that time. Individually, poems, the way I look at them, are snapshots. Imagine yourself in a, a, a moving train or a car or whatever, and you're looking out the window. And the poem is what you see at that given second when you look out that window. But everything else around that window is the reader's imagination. So poems are just snapshots of a moment in time. And and again, my poems are snapshots. Let me read something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A uh, real short one. He said, touch spit to me and I sizzle. That's way too hot, he said. Damn it, half the tequila. That's just a, 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 a snapshot. You know, mm-hmm. the the poems are very short. Or, or, or again, this one, but only a page and a half. I'm a sucker for black and white movies and salads made with oil and vinegar and real crunchy garlic bread. I have a high tolerance for pain except for needles and hangnails. I love dogs, hate cats, and slam the door on Jehovah's Witnesses. I like W.C. Fields, Groucho Marx, and fart jokes, (laughs) and anything that has to do with World War II. I've had five great loves in my life, four were dogs, and the fifth is upstairs laying on the couch, half asleep, watching Dateline. Mm. Again, I just want my poems to be little snapshots of my life, which is not exceptional, which is just like anybody else's life. And... If anything, that's the exceptional part of my, of my poetry, understanding that it's not exceptional. Does that make sense? I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah, because I think that you arrive at a, at a moment where you're not creating artifice. You're not getting to, you're not feeling uncomfortable with your voice and what you have to say. And there's something about complete honesty, bravery, and, and commitment to who you are that takes some time to master. It's not something that that is organic to most people. And uh, I, I think that that is an achievement. You know, in, in my opinion, you know, there there's probably been about 15 years of my writing that feels like emulation, right? And And now I'm arriving at a place that feels so genuine to me that I'm like, yes, I've written like handfuls and handfuls of plays, but these ones that I'm writing this year or in the last while are the ones that feel the most true to who I am. And what a gift that is. That, that is just a, a wonderful place to be. So I'm, you know, it's incredibly wonderful to see and hear. <laughs> so, and it's a great feeling, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's truth. It's truth and honesty with oneself. And self-love in some ways. I mean, it, it really is just accepting this is who I am and what I have to share. I got a couple of questions here to be mindful of your time, but uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, what is on the horizon here moving forward for you? You are incredibly prolific. You're doing so much, but I'm curious how you're organizing your your priorities in, in the next year or so.
1: Uh- there's no organization it, it's kind of haphazard everything is you <laughs> know on the fly but again the organization lies in doing it every day so the organization lies in the the commitment to a work ethic that's that's something i i can't stress hard enough to aspiring writers you just got to be you you, you got to be consistent Mm hmm.
0: Yeah. And if there are any other things that you'd like to share to say somebody who's just starting on their creative journey, I, I feel like I, I want to put a bit more emphasis on that part of the podcast, because I think that you you have so much uh, so much history doing this, that you have picked up things that work for you. And I'm curious if you could share a few things that have indeed been tried and true for you in terms of the specifics of your routine. And what, what does that look like? What is a win for you? How do you catalog those things? And, and what keeps you going in the moment when the writing just isn't isn't ideal?
1: Okay. Um, w- w- when something doesn't work for me, and that's most of the time, uh, and, and you got to learn that, you got to accept that, I throw it out. Uh, I've never been one of those kind of writers who saves a whole series stack of works in progress Mm. if a poem doesn't work for me immediately or almost immediately i throw it out now that comes and you can appreciate this that comes with doing the work over time and and getting that intellectual muscle memory that you know when you're going good, you know? Mm -hmm. So by the time something hits the paper, it's already almost complete in my head. But that only comes through time. It's like, you know, a a baseball player doesn't think, oh, I've got to take a step to my left and lead with my right foot. He doesn't think about that. That's just a, a natural process from having done it a thousand times over and over again. Same thing with the poetry Uh, that facility only comes from coming down here every morning and trying it a thousand times a thousand days.
0: Mm. Yeah. So it's the consistency you come back to, to that willingness, that determination to share um, even on the days when you don't feel like it then. Absolutely.
1: I, you know, I I come down here and I I do something and most times it, just crap and i i understand <laughs> that but the the good thing for me was understanding that those bad days are part of the process you you, you know you you don't get those good days without running through a whole lot of bad days mm-hmm. just part of the process yeah
0: so if if i may ask do you still feel that uh that total feeling of excitement when you've completed a manuscript when do you know it's done and let's say uh 24 poems for example when you finish that manuscript or you had a conversation with your editor and it was it was a done deal what is what is the feeling does it has it eroded that pleasure of completing something
1: you know it it never gets old uh I, I, and i would have thought it would at 72 i get just as excited about having a book accepted, having some magazine write and say that they're taking some of my stuff, that joy never gets old. And and I'm fortunate, and I'm happy, and I'm grateful because of that. Uh, when I'm putting together a book, especially a book of poems, uh, I, I understand that it's got to have a narrative to it, uh, an ebb and a flow of a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that's part of the the job for me. Uh, uh, we, we were talking about that whole thing of of acceptance and and, and appreciating the little moments. Let, let me read another poem to you, if I may. It goes, "Somebody take my picture, quick." Right now, Kathy's upstairs baking something. I don't know what it is, but the recipe calls for whiskey. She asked me to get it for her, so I dug a bottle of Jack Daniels out of the cabinet. It's right now sitting on top of this desk, right here in front of me, along with my reading glasses and some poems I just finished. And, you know, it'd make a great picture, the hard-drinking and harder-living poet. Knocking off the poems and the JD with equal skill. A really great picture. Take it. Take it now. Take it now and I'll sign it for you. Take it now and I'll give you 20 bucks to go away. Take it now before you go upstairs and take that other picture. You know the one. Me in an apron taking cookies out of the oven.
0: Mm. It's beautiful. It's wonderful stuff there. So, John I, I want to uh just take take a minute to ask you one last question. This has been a phenomenal time and I do hope that we get to chat down the road. I know that you have a lot of projects coming down so uh hopefully in the coming months, you know, we'll get to together to have a round 2. But lastly, uh because this this has been so fruitful in terms of of longevity and having that kind of that kind of long-term mentality and seeing you Seeing you continue is, is I think the most inspiring thing personally to me, I love hearing these stories so much that I wonder if you could just indulge me for a moment and share a couple of final thoughts for folks who are just getting started on that creative journey, whether they're writing fiction or, or poetry, whatever it is that they want to share. Could you, could you let them know some things for the long journey for the long haul?
1: Um, you have to understand that things change you change as an artist again I'm sure you can appreciate this and you're not going to be the same person or artist that you were Miles Davis the perfect example you know he, he changed every time in his career and he did things differently and he did it to keep it interesting for himself and I try to do that. I, I, I try to change. I try to keep things fresh and new. I'm always trying to discover something new about myself and my surroundings. And as young writers, you have to do that. And, and you always start out by finding people that you like, that, that you appreciate, that you look up to. Uh, for me, it was, again, a, as a writer, I looked up to musicians who taught me more about writing than other writers did. Uh, Most importantly, uh, Miles Davis. Again, I always talk about Miles. Um, What I learned from listening to him was that less is more, that the silence on the page or, or in a musical sense, the silence is just as important as the sound. And that was something that was hard and took a long time for me to understand. And if I could pass that on to, to young writers, they could learn that silenced all the rest of the white parts of their page, is very important. That's something I'd like to pass on.
0: And I think that's a beautiful, remarkable, insightful note to end on. So I, John, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This has been such a pleasure. And uh, I want to thank you for, for this determination and for this honesty to embrace oneself and one's perspective and share it with the world. And, and doing that over the long haul, as I said, is just such a gift. So Thank you again for your time, and I know we just scratched the surface, but uh, hopefully we'll get a chance once again to to catch up, and and maybe you can let me know what, what else you're up to. And maybe we can talk about music, too.
1: I, I'd love to do that. Uh, I've got so many musicians I'd love to talk about. And, and uh, when those two new books are out, maybe we can do this dance again. I'd really appreciate it.
0: Hey, that's that sounds like a plan, John. Uh, thanks again for bearing with me as we try to put everything together. But I will be in touch real soon on the internet and I will have an episode for you real, real soon. So you take care and I will be in touch real soon. Thanks, man. All right. You take care. Okay, bye. Thank you.